Welcome to Bread. From the beginning, God's people have engaged in the regular worship of God. From a biblical perspective, not only is worship of God our highest calling, it is in fact integral to who we are. So understanding what worship is, how we do it, and practicing it enables us to become more fully ourselves. This short series covers the worship life of Bread. From sung worship and services on a Sunday, to a general posture of worshipfulness throughout our daily lives, to worshiping God with our resources, our time, and our gifting. Enjoy! This is the fourth talk in this series that we've got uh, going on on worship. And um, we've been focusing very much so far um, on the sung worship in our services aspect of that. Sung worship is very core to our Western experience of church, isn't it? But actually, the New Testament rarely applies the specific words for worship to Christian meetings, nor does it say a lot about the music that they had in Christian meetings. So we have got this from Colossians 3, let the message of uh, Christ dwell among you richly, as, um, we got that one up there? Maybe not. I'll read it to you. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, Spirit um, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And we know that uh, doxology was clearly, singing praise was clearly a part of the oral Jewish tradition. But the questioning among us could have a very valid case for why we put such an emphasis on sung worship in our services. And we definitely hope that um, the first three uh, uh, talks in this series have answered some of those questions. If you missed them, absolutely brilliant, all three of them, do highly recommend going back and listening to them. Uh, personally, the communal worship part of church was beyond a doubt the thing that I found it hardest to live without for the 14 long months of lockdown. Um, and I will never forget the emotion that I felt just being back with you all singing uh, in May 2021, actually, almost exactly two years ago today. Um, I rely on this practice in my faith, I realize. It's not something I find very easy to do on my own. Ed and I tried a few times to worship together. I just, it was a bit weird. I'm not always that very comfortable with it. I need something of this communal experience of it to really get into what it's supposed to be. And there's actually very interesting science of this we bond over rhythm, rhythm and music. They give us a shared experience of sensory data. Um, it's called entrainment. Because our brains are made right from birth to mirror each other, um, so when we do this together, we respond to what's going on for each other, and we absorb all sorts of lovely things. Um, and so endorphins and oxytocin are produced as we do it, and it's a, it results in this feeling of pleasure and empathy and social bonds are created. We actually wire ourselves together as a church when we sing together neurologically and physiologically. And of course, the stuff that we're singing is, hopefully, we do try to make sure that the songs are full of the profound scriptural truth about who God is. But on the science part of it, it might be easy to therefore say for a disbeliever that that's all that's happening that there's nothing spiritual happening at all when we sing together. But for me, this is just evidence of the ridiculous clarity in the design and the ancient instruction to sing songs of praise together. This naturally supernatural experience is so cool to what we do as a church. As Ed was talking about, um, our framework for it all came from 
John Wimber, this uh, Californian guy whose legacy is still felt very um, widely across the British church, believe it or not, after yesterday. Um, he taught generations of us actually now to receive and minister in the Holy Spirit as part of our church practice. And for him, worship was absolutely central to this. He was, um, of course, uh, he was a singer um, before he was a worship leader, and, and this, all of this came out of his experience of what it was to worship God. He described it and he taught it as though we are to see it as a journey through the temple. So you know this picture of the temple. We've looked at a few times the ancient um, Jerusalem temple where there's outer courts, inner courts, and then this one place of the Holy and Holies that we're to see our worship experience as being like this, that we start with the outer court worship, which is where everyone is allowed. So we state these objective facts about who it is that God, that we believe God is, and we're saying this to him, but we're also saying this to each other. We start with the reminders, and it helps us to take our eyes off ourselves, which for most of us have been on ourselves all week, and we start to put our eyes on him, and then we move to a place of more intimacy in the inner courts, in the songs that are perhaps a little bit more personal, um, a little bit more reflective, and they take us towards the most holy of holies. And in that place is where we're always kind of aiming to get to. I don't know if you, you felt it at the end of the worship then, where there's these simple songs about loving Jesus's presence. We've, we're sort of filling our minds with simple things. We're trying for those songs to actually not be very wordy so that we can just get into almost quite a meditative state but to fill our minds with him and still our minds so that we can experience him, so that we can receive him. And it's in this place that Wimber taught us, and it's in this place that certainly those of us that have spent some time working on hearing God's voice, and Ed was talking last week about prophecy and how that's, that works and how linked that is to worship. It's in that space that we tend to hear his voice and experience him most readily. And it's in that place as well that we join together in this incredible space. The acoustics in this building are rough, particularly since they sorted the ceiling out and we're working on it. But when we get to that place and everyone's singing together, it was there today, two weeks ago, I think it was when Ben did this singing out together. It's a flipping amazing space for us to be in this picture and even imagine ourselves of what it says in Revelation 4 about the throne room that we kind of see ourselves as entering into in this, where they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And we kind of join in this thing together. We are, I'm going to get a little bit, step into an uncomfortable space for me, but give it a go. We are incredibly blessed with the phenomenally talented musicians and songwriters that we have on our team and roster. Not paid, all of them here to serve you. Some of them the best in the business, true worshipers who are here to lead you into a place of worship and to lead you into the presence of God. So may I take this opportunity to humbly request that every single one of us prioritize arriving on time for the start of worship every week. We are resolved to hit go at 10.30. We've not always been very good at that. If you want coffee and a chat, great. Come before. But 10.15, coffee's out there from 10. Even better still, come at 10. Have some extra praise and worship with us and prayer in the chapel. Everyone's welcome to that. But please hear it from me that we're, we're really trying to begin this journey together at 10.30. And we would love you to be here with us when it starts. If you can't, if you have young children, all the grace to you. If you've got other reasons that you need to be late or you can't, don't get your own time, you never need to say sorry to us. We're never going to tell you off for it. We just thought it would be helpful that you know that we'd love you all to be here at 10.30. And I'm done with this good 
we're moving on to a broader scriptural understanding of what worship is this morning. Because as I said, the words used for worship in the New Testament are rarely connected to the gathering and the singing in sort of explicitly at all, um, as much as praise in music was part of it. I think um, actually that we all get that the music and praise bit isn't a full and complete picture of what a worship prayer involves because it is very easy to sit through and join in three songs of worship and have actually a euphoric experience of the time of worship and then walk out the door for the rest of the week and live your lives completely unchanged. I think we all get that, don't we? Jesus wants our whole lives to be acts of worship. Not because he demands it of us, but because that's what we're made for. To enter into the fullness of relationship, the Trinity of love and adoration. And he wants no stone left unturned in terms of what we include in this relationship. He's relentless like this. And none of us will ever get there, not completely. But this is what we believe that we are designed to spend this one and precious life that we have attaining towards, giving him everything in worship. So this is what we're going to look at this morning, particularly about how generosity is the hallmark of a worshipful life. So let's begin with some Greek, shall we? Uh, the first and most widely used word for uh, worship in the New Testament is proskunio or proskunao, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it. Uh, literally to kiss, as in kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior. It denotes respect and absolute submission, like a dog licking its master's hand. That's what's implied by the words used. The literal act of lowering oneself as a sign of adoration. It's first used in the New Testament, of course, um, by the Magi who traveled 900 miles to um, find the one born king of the Jews because that's what the stars have told them to do. And they uh, believe that he's gonna be worthy of their worship and when they found him, find, they bow down and they worship him. It's the disciples' response when they have seen Jesus walk on water and calm the storm. It's the word that John uses, in, sorry, Jesus uses in John 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman and she is asking about where to worship God and he says it's not about the where, it's about true work, worshippers being what the Father is seeking, the ones who will worship in spirit and in truth, not a ritual or a method, but as a, a way of whole life. Bowing down is not our favorite position, is it? In fact, I'd go as far as to say it's one that, it's an image that we're pretty uncomfortable with. Um, our historical and cultural outlooks probably tell us that it's not something that, that befits us at all as respectable humans to bow down like this. <clears throat> when I was 23 and a very, very new Christian, um, I helped run a conference um, with an organization I was working with in Dubai for mainly Indian churches, it was quite a big conference, and um, they were there gathering there to sort of address the needs of the estimated 8 million um, Indian migrant workers across the region. It's an absolutely horrific situation. Still today, 90% um, of the worker, workforce in that area is made up of migrant workers, and they are promised something, a great wage, that they, you know, far more than they can earn at home. And then when they get there, their passports are removed and they're stuck in awful living and working conditions with no rights and nothing they can do about it. So we were hosting this event with other Indian churches. 
and this sort of equivalent events host um, to my role lady asked if we could pray together and I was a very new Christian this was about the most uncomfortable thing you could possibly ask me to do um, but I did I sort of politely joined in if if you're not comfortable with praying out loud it's fine it's very very normal to feel really uncomfortable with the language it takes I think it makes us feel very very vulnerable to do that but do try join a small group give it a two sentence go just try because the only way to get better at it is to try so I'm praying with this lady. Anthropologically, I've always been quite fascinated by the, by the lingo, the jargon that we use in our prayer life, actually in all of our, all of our Christian lives. Um, the, I think it's all, again, it's mirror neurons again, but it's the way we pick up the way that other people speak about things. So have you noticed that there's that different churches have different cultures about how they pray? Just the rhythm of their language. I think there's a lot of this Father God, that Father God. Have you heard that a lot? I always notice that. Well, this lady didn't call God Father. She didn't pray to Jesus. She prayed to Master. We thank you, Master, that you love us, Master. And I found it so uncomfortable. Such is, such was and still is my Western-centric, post-colonial, individualistic mentality. And who was I to judge that, particularly as she was the one who was getting it right. Let us please remember how tunneled our vision is, even when it comes to our willingness to examine how we worship God, to look at the offense we feel, consciously or otherwise, that worshiping God in spirit and in truth means bowing down to him. The second word is sebo, to show reverence, adoration, um, it's the awe of someone who is devout. Um, it's not always used positively. Jesus uses it to describe the devoutness of the lives of the Pharisees. It's most often used in the New Testament to describe um, Gentiles who are worshippers. So Cornelius, the Lydia's in the Book of Acts, things like that. Um, they're called worshippers because of their devotion to him. And thirdly, the third word is latruo. Um, meaning more like to serve. The literal meaning is someone hired to complete a technical task for which they are properly qualified. So it would be like Anna, the widow prophetess in Luke 2, who's never left the temple for 60 years, and she's worshipped and served day or night, fasting and praying her whole life. Um, so it's a word for service that's almost interchangeable with worship. Proscunio. Sebumai and Latruo. Absolute submission, the awe of the devout, and our lives given to serve. Being a worshipper by New Testament standards is being so overcome by the wonder of God and his greatness and what it is to be loved, known, and accepted by him that we are willing to give away our everything in response. It's not, not confrontational when you put it all together, is it? Somehow getting here for 10.30 for three songs of worship doesn't seem so difficult now, does it? Let's agree, shall we? 15 minutes left of this talk to just sit with the confrontation here as we look at the worshipful lives of one of the new churches in the New Testament from Paul's second letter to the church there in Corinth. Alton, where are you? Come and read to us. 
morning, church. So I'm gonna be reading from 2 Corinthians um, chapter 9, verses 6 to 15, if you want to pull it up. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Alton. Uh, so just to give a little bit of context here. Um, Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, is on a mission. Unity in the fledgling church within congregations and between the Gentile and the Jewish congrega congregations is always his mission. And at this point in his ministry, his eyes are fixed very pointedly on it because the Jerusalem church is still having a hard time with the inclusion of the new Gentile congregations. But they in Jerusalem have been hit by a horrendous famine. And Paul spies it as an opportunity to show them, to prove to them how much their uncircumcised brothers and sisters understand the gospel because they're so willing to be generous towards them. <clears throat> What we might not also be aware of is that um, relations be between Paul and this church have also soured significantly between them in between the first letter that he wrote and when he's writing now. Um, so that's the letter that Ed read from last week and it contains some stuff about order in their services. Um, there's, actually, this is, there's been a big rift between them and Paul since then because they have uh, essentially rejected him as the one who um, is the source of truth on these things. They've kind of gone with a whole other load of sexual and marriage practices and followed other leaders. And he'd been in between and they'd publicly really humiliated him. It was a great source of sorrow for him. And he's writing this now because he's heard that some of them have apologized and kind of come back to him. But it's, it's quite the context for a bold fundraising move, isn't it? If you think about it, this is the first time they're hearing from him. Um, uh, since all that happened, and he's banging on about this promise that they've made to give money to another church. In the verses um, before our passage, he actually does a, quite a lot of what, again, I think feels quite difficult to us, because he starts it with, um, so you said you were going to give to this thing, and I've just been in uh, Macedonia around a load of other churches, and they have got way less than you, and they have just given, like, super generously, so take this as a challenge. Uh, now you need to do what you said you were going to do and, and give all this money, because you've got loads of money, Corinth, so come on, show us, show us where the money is. 
is so offensive to us, isn't it? All this, if you sow generously, you'll reap generously, and you've got to be cheerful about it. I wonder how many of us have heard these verses before, or snapshots of these verses, and, and, and received them as part of something that feels much more coercive and manipulative in a church setting. But as we know, the early church worked differently. There is a letter um, thought to date back to about 130 AD, so about 75 years after this was written, that many believe is the first example of Christian apologetics called uh, the Epistle to Diognetus. It's by an unknown Greek writer who is using this argument to this Greek um, teacher, probably, um, that it is the church itself that is evidence for the truth of the Christian claim. I'm just reading some excerpts from it because it's very long. Part of it says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind, either in locality or in speech or in customs. Neither do they use some different language nor practice an extraordinary kind of life. Nor are they masters of any human dogma, as some are. But while they dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians and follow the native customs in dress and food and the other arrangements of life, they love all men and they are persecuted by all. They are in beggary and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things and yet they abound in all things. The radical love and generosity of the early church was what set it apart. Wherever the church spread in this period, everything changed in that area as a matter of historical record. Nine out of 10 people in this era lived at subsistence, right at subsistence. And yet there was no needy person among them, it says in Acts. It was unheard of. What else for the Roman Empire with all its decadence and immorality and inequality? At the height of its power, what else could have allured them to bow down to this God? The church was, just as Jesus commanded in Acts 1, his witness. The way that they lived witnessed to the grace, service, and generosity of Jesus. This is what drew people into it. So Paul isn't worried about writing to the church in Corinth and asking them for money. He's not worried about it at all. He's not being delicate in his timing or his wording. He knows that generosity is just part of their very DNA. Even, and this is what really got me this week, even amidst all the other stuff, all the other morality and practice stuff that they were clearly getting so wrong. God loves a cheerful giver. It's not a distasteful sentiment at all to them. God loves one because he is the ultimate one. He is the ultimate cheerful giver. Cheerful in the Greek is the word from which we have hilarious. God loves giving to us. This whole attribute of what it is to love, the joy of seeing how good it is to see someone that you love receive a gift. Gift giving has never been a simple part of our marriage. I have a husband who is extremely difficult to buy for. We're now at a stage where I just ask him for links when birthday and Christmas is coming around. Um, but I did once uh, manager on our 10th anniversary, he had sold his very nice guitar to pay for our honeymoon, and he had not, by our 10th anniversary, he still didn't have a, a guitar. 
and I saved up, and I knew exactly what he wanted. It was a Gibson Sunburst, and I had a friend help me find one, and I hid it, and I kept it a secret, which is also not something that's a strong suit of mine. And it was just amazing to give it to him. It felt so good. His little face. <laughs> and he played it all day, which was actually quite annoying because it was our anniversary and we were supposed to be together. <laughs> but that's not, I mean, giving to a partner is an easy thing, right? This is the kind of love that we have received and that it changes us. So we want to give it to everyone, we want to share it with everyone. We want to mirror him and emulate God in this aspect. Being his workmanship, which is language that Paul uses in Ephesians, means that just being who we are is an act of worship. Exercising our gifts is an act of worship. Sharing our homes, sharing our kitchen tables, our friendship circles, this is an act of worship being generous with forgiveness, being quick to forgive, being generous with the intentions of others, being generous with the inconvenience caused by others, the emotional needs of others. These are all ways that we worship God because we are being like him. It is latruo, it is sebamai, it is proscunio, it is worship when we are generous with our whole selves. And we can only do this because it is what we have experienced. It's almost like the simple physics of generosity being what overflows when we know the generous love that is given to us. I loved that picture from Dustin. It felt like exactly what I was in my mind with this kind of picture of it just flowing into us. And we're not whole mugs, are we? None of us, we're broken. And he makes it so that we can contain this and start to overflow with it. God loves a cheerful giving, a giver. So giving shouldn't, verse 7, be done reluctantly or under compulsion. Generosity under compulsion, it actually isn't possible. It stops being generosity. And being an uncheerful Giver is just, it's never going to help you. It's why we don't push anyone into giving us their time or their money. We don't believe that's, it, it doesn't help you be who you are if you're doing any of it under compulsion. It doesn't mean it's not good for you. It doesn't mean that being part of a church requires you to give yourself to it. But you are welcome to come here and not do any of that for as long as you like, for as long as it takes for you to receive it and want to overflow with the giving it away. It would be remiss of me to not let you know at this point in our church calendar that we are looking for 20 new regular givers. One-off gift, gifts, one gifts are fantastic. Regular givers really help us plan, and we're at this moment in our calendar where we need to plan for the next year, so we always try and get 20 new givers at this point. Just got to let you know that. But there is no compulsion. We will never look at you differently. I don't even know. Ed has to know some of it. I don't even know who gives what. That's not what we're here to do. We're not rating you. Our job here is that you come here and you receive what you need to receive. And we become this church together that gives ourselves away.
there was an old way of worship. The offering that Cain and Abel brought, the whole complex sacrificial system of a mosaic covenant that involved burnt offerings and drink offerings and grain offerings and incense offerings and all sorts of offerings in a highly complex form of worship instituted by God as a mark of his promise and for them to atone for their sins. But that form of worship is done. There is no amount of giving that you can do to earn any right standing or his pleasure or his love or his desire to lavish you with more good gifts. All of that is already yours. It is already done. It has already been paid for. Jesus paid it all as we sang in that lovely old hymn. I love an old hymn. It's when we understand this that everything in our understanding shifts. The world gives us very clear messages. Our cultures give it everything about how we are raised and what we see around us gives us this messaging that who we are and what we have is ours. And we have rights to it. And it's damn near offensive if I even question that logic. But that all that stuff loses its allure when we understand how differently this works in the kingdom. We start to see that everything we have is a gift. It's not what we've earned, it's not what we deserve. Everything we have been given is a gift. In verse 13, Paul says, it's an understanding of this um, because it, he says, because of this you have proved yourselves. There is proof in our ability to be generous that we have understood the love of God and his generous heart towards us. If you want to ask yourself how much you know yourself to be loved, the way that you handle yourself, your whole self, your time, your gifts, your money, it's a pretty great yardstick. And if you know that generosity is an issue for you, if this is your least favorite subject matter that you ever hear about in church because it feels the, makes you feel the worst about your faith, welcome to the club. I've had to sit with this all week. I've had to sit with this all week while we have been discussing and trying to book a vacation for this summer. I've had to sit with whether that's okay, because actually I've been looking at the early church and it makes me feel really quite worried and sick. We shouldn't be spending any money on something like that. We should be giving everything away that's, not, that's left over. And I'm just reminded I just need to know more of the love. Jesus gets why it makes us feel so bad. It's why he taught so much about it. The world makes us feel terrified that we don't have enough. It makes us feel mad when we look around us because other people have got more. This town screams it at us. And it makes generosity feel absolutely impossible. This is the normal human condition. It's okay. If you know that to be true of yourself, and I say this to myself, this only starts when we let ourselves off the hook. If generosity is an issue, love is the answer. His love and grace is always the answer. Receive more. Tell him it's what you need and ask him to show you his generous love. Ask him to provide. 
verse 8 says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. And it says, he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness and enrich you in every way from verses 10 and 11. He is able to, so ask him and give your whole self back to him. It holds your whole self back when you keep a part of it for yourself. Last week in the worship time, at the end of the service, when Ed was encouraging people to kind of take the next step in their prayer and prophetic life, even if they'd never done it before, it occurred to me that so much of what we believe worship is, of what it says that worship is, is about letting go of control. It requires a great deal of relinquishing control to be open to uh, publicly prophesying, for example. We like to order ourselves, don't we, in public? We don't want to risk looking stupid. Why on earth would we do that? It requires a great deal of letting go to risk, to worship God generously and include our finances in that, to include our careers in that, to include our hopes and fears for relationships in that. And we really, really don't like to feel out of control, do we? It can feel very, very scary. I always think of something that Tim Keller says, who is a fantastic Bible teacher from New York, if you don't know him. He says it quite often in talks where he is talking about these kind of things. He says, God can't put his blessings in a tight fist. But this is how we, most of us, live our lives with the things that we believe are, our, are ours and the things that we believe we have a right to hope for and long for. But actually, this is the picture of worship. So I wonder if um, Tava and the band want to come up now. I don't know if you would you like to stand. We're going to close here. But I would love to invite you to just practice this, whether you want to do it with your body or just do it in your mind's eye. If there are things for you, I say if, there are things for all of us, and there always will be, where it is impossibly difficult to believe that it's possible for us to worship God by relinquishing control of certain things in our lives. But I'd love to invite you to invite him into this now.